Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today, I am joined by our guest, Brad Sorte from Karen Treatment Centers. Welcome, Brad. Hey, how are you doing, Arden? Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about a, a topic that's really close to my heart, which is the elephant in the room facing addiction as a family. And to give our listeners and our uh, viewers some background on you, Brad, I'm going to talk a little bit about your impressive resume. You've basically grown up in the Karen Treatment Center family, starting as a family therapist. In July of 2021, you took over the role as CEO. And it sounds like the combination of both your clinical and business leadership skills will help to bring Karen forward into the future. And I'd love to talk to you about a whole range of topics related to your own story, with addiction and then what you're seeing as trends, especially as it relates to family members. So why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me and, and, and giving me the opportunity to talk about, uh, talk about all these different things, especially, uh, some of the personal story. Um, it's a bit of a unique one. Um, I mean, if you had, if you had asked me 30 years ago, um, if this is what you thought I would be doing, um, uh, there's no way that I would have guessed. Uh, I had, uh, you know, grew up in uh, New York City and Westchester County um, and, and really had no thoughts, aspirations or desires to be uh, working in a clinical capacity. Um, I really didn't know anything about the mental health industry or the addiction industry. Um, and, and I don't really didn't even consider working in healthcare. Um, but, um, I had, um, you know, had grown up with, uh, a, you know, a very loving family had twin younger sisters and, uh, you know, went to pretty competitive private schools, you know, throughout my, my, uh, my younger years. Um, and, you know, enjoyed my high school and college experiences. Um, which were, um, you know, kind of laid the foundation for uh, uh, developing my own substance use disorder. Um, I would say that for the most part, Arden, I I was pretty good at being able to kind of get by doing pretty well, Um, you know, kind of the old attitude of work hard, play hard. Um, I probably could have done a lot better without the play hard part, um, but (laughs) was able to be a, you know, you're pretty typical B student, um, uh, being able to balance the two. And, and for the most part, that kind of kept people off my back. Um, but ended up going to a, a competitive school down in Texas. Um, and really, it wasn't until kind of the end uh, of the uh, of the road there where, where things really started getting pretty rocky. Miraculously managed to, fin- managed to finish, um, which still is a bit of a mind boggling experience. But at the end of it, uh, kind of just threw everything I owned in a truck, a uh, rental, rental U-Haul truck, drove back up to New York um, and realized pretty quickly that just finishing college with no direction and really no plan as to what to do next was not 
um, kind of a one-way ticket to um, the middle class that I expected. And, you know, within about four or five months of getting back close to home, uh, it became pretty clear that the, uh, you know, the road was really going nowhere. So uh, a lot of gratitude to my parents who, after a few short months, said, you know, enough's enough. Um, you know, you got a choice you got to make here. Here's a here's a plan. You can go to this place, Karen. Uh, this is 2006, just before Thanksgiving. Uh, you can go there for a month and, um, you know, get your get your act together and we can kind of get back together as a family and move forward with life or you can, you know, go off on your own and figure it out on your own and we'll have an arm's length relationship with you and, um, you know, we'll see what happens, but we're not doing this anymore. And I, I'd said, you know, this is probably a good deal. I was 24. I looked around at what my friends were doing. Um, and you know, the, this, the, the narrative that I kind of, internalized at that point was um, it would be better to start from zero than to wake up every morning and start from negative 1000. I mean, it was so hard to get traction and this idea that I could go somewhere and kind of declare bankruptcy, so to speak, and get redirected in a new direction seemed like a good deal. Little did I know that the plan was going to then involve another five or six months uh, of continuing care down at, uh, at Renaissance, but that was really the key piece that I needed. Um, I went away, a 24-year-old, um, you know, dependent young adult, um, the day before Thanksgiving 2006, and I finished up at Renaissance, Good Friday 2007. I had a job, a car, um, uh, a home that I was able to get myself, and had uh, launched into adulthood, in, into sobriety, and, and realized that a, a big thing that I really needed was all of the uh, ego-strengthening components of uh, really stepping into adulthood on my own. wasn't particularly happy with my station in life. Um, you know, I had, a, you know, roommates and felt pretty behind the eight ball. But, you know, at least I knew that if I lost everything again, I could put put my life back together and take take one step in front of the other. Um, but I felt like a, a man possessed in terms of wanting to move forward with life. And I felt some direction and some um, some clarity as to what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I didn't want to work in a nine to five job. I really liked what I studied in college, which was psychology. And I actually, in some bizarre paradoxical way, kind of enjoyed the therapeutic process that happened in treatment. And I said, I think I can make a career out of this. So I took the only job that you could get in the field with a bachelor's degree in psychology. And I started as an over, overnight BHT at a treatment center, uh, making, I think at the time, $9 an hour. Um, and, uh, and it was a great way to get a foot in the door and a great way to help people. Um, it was a treatment center that no longer exists. It was not at Karen. So it was really the one job I had outside of Karen and, uh, you know, got lucky. There was an opportunity that came up just due to some, you know, kind of crazy circumstances where they needed someone in a role of a case manager, adjunct therapist. And um, they asked me if they felt I could do the job. I said, I could do anything you asked me to do. Just tell me what you need. And so I spent the next 18 months as a, as a therapist doing groups, interventions, um, psychosocials, all sorts of things that, that were really helpful in preparing me for uh, ultimately going back to grad school in 2009 and doing my master's of social work. Um, and then from there, had a couple internships, both in the court system and then uh, at the counseling center at Florida Atlantic University, 
um, with an eye towards wanting to go back and work at Karen. So that was really the only job I applied for in my last semester of graduate school was uh, at Karen Renaissance, which is where I really wanted to work. Um, and uh, so when I when I was offered a position there, they said, you know, there's three there's three jobs uh, that we have openings for, and um, you can have your pick. We have uh, a job in admissions, we have a job as a primary therapist, and we have a job as a family therapist. And where would you see yourself wanting to work? And I said, well, I, I wanna work with families. Uh, that's the area that I think is the, uh, the critical piece for, um, for this patient population, really for all patient populations, but particularly for that young adult population. That was, for me, the only reason that I was there uh, at that point in time was because I was able to differentiate from my family and I was such a true believer in that part of the process um, that it was just so meaningful for me to have an opportunity to hopefully be able to share some of those learnings with um, other other patients and other families as they were kind of coming through the process. Uh, kind of along the same lines with that, that experience at that first treatment center and through some of my internships, I also realized that there seemed to be a great opportunity in healthcare, uh, behavioral health in, in particular, but healthcare in general, where um, the more people we had with a clinical skill set and some business acumen, probably the better we could deliver healthcare more broadly. It just seemed that we didn't have as many people who could live in both worlds. And so I enrolled in an MBA program part-time mm -hmm. while I was doing that, just thinking it would be a valuable knowledge base to have at some point down the road. Um, and uh, you know, they, they say that luck is when uh, preparation meets opportunity. And so I finished that degree in the end of 2014 and then in the beginning of 2015, Sid Goodman, who had founded Renaissance and had been running Renaissance and Ocean Drive and all the Karen Florida programs um, uh, since uh, he sold to Karen in 2003, decided to retire. And uh, so uh, after an internal search process, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be selected to take over for him. And, and so I got an opportunity to run those programs uh, up until uh, we decided to move up to Pennsylvania in 2020 and then began the, the, the uh, transition process and the search process for Doug Tiemann's successor. I uh, got to do a lot of exciting things in the middle there, um, but uh, it's been a really, you know, really exciting journey, you know, to go from kind of, you know, getting dropped off the day before Thanksgiving in 2022 and really not having a clue what was going on. And, and then, you know, in really a short 15 year period of time, to get to do so many exciting things to be part of this organization um, has been very special. It's an incredible story. I mean, talk about really growing up in the care and treatment system. You know, I'm curious based on your experience, both professionally and personally, you know, Karen works with a lot of families, I know on a spectrum, but many who have resources and certainly, you know, if your family was able to send you to Karen, presumably there were some resources there. How do you think that helps or hinders the process of recovery for, for young people particularly? I mean, unfortunately, it, it helps tremendously. Um, you know, I think that resources are, are, you know, it's an interesting, you know, it's actually an interesting uh, and dynamic puzzle because resources um, play a role in, um, in, in substance use disorder risk, and they also play a role in recovery. Um, and it all depends on how they're deployed. Um, you know, a good 
colleague of mine uh, and a great voice in this space, Dr. Paul Hochemeyer talks about um, money. So if we talk about resources, we're talking about money, but however shape that takes, whether you got good insurance, whether you have cash resources, um, uh, that money is like electricity. And it is a very powerful tool that can be used um, for tremendous good and growth, um, but it's also something that needs to be respected um, and it can be very destructive and it can be lethal. So um, while having resources can enable or uh, empower somebody to access some of the best care in the country, um, having resources can also enable somebody to not have the consequences or not feel the consequences necessary um, to get help. So um, you know, looking at it in totality, I think is really important. I'll give you a little anecdote from our story, though, that that was uh, really important um, in in me getting help at that time. And so a conversation that happened behind closed doors that I wasn't a part of that led to the decision for me to go to Karen was my mom and dad met with our therapist and she said, your son needs to go to residential treatment. He's not going to get well on his own. He's not going to get well an outpatient. But if you don't send him to an outpatient first and he fails there, your insurance yeah. is probably not going to pay. Um, he really should go to Karen, um, but you should send him to this place first, let him fail. Once he fails, you'll have a much greater chance of getting reimbursed when he goes to Karen. And my dad said, we're not doing that. He said, I'm not mm. living with this nightmare for another 60, 90 days just to get reimbursed. He, he said, we have, we're lucky enough that we have the resources to be able to do this. Um, we're going to do it right the first time and either it works or it doesn't work. And if he blows it, he blows it. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to make a financial decision about this just so that we can hopefully get reimbursed. And um, they were able to do that, but a lot of other people aren't. And so that's a great example right there where um, coming from a family that had the ability to do so allowed them to make the right clinical decision as opposed to other situations where you know, you have to work, do these workarounds um, that oftentimes may lead to people never getting help because they may get this, you know, disheartened about the efficacy of treatment. They may die in the meantime. Um, and uh, we weren't, we didn't have to do that. Kind of a sidebar to that story is in spite of all of that, our insurance ended up reimbursing them fully. So that was a nice surprise. Um, but but uh, that is a big factor in that. Um, but sure. the flip side of it is, is, you know, I probably should have ended up in treatment when I was 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably the reason that I didn't was because of access to resources. So, you know, I had, I was notorious in college. Uh, uh, Rice University had a very liberal job, uh, drop policy where you could drop classes up until the uh, 10th week of a 15 week semester with no penalty and nothing on your transcript. Now you lost the money. But there was no W on your transcript, so I had a habit of signing up for lots of classes and then dropping the ones I was doing poorly in. So very easy (laughs) to get good grades when you're taking extra classes and figuring out which ones to drop to keep the ones with good grades. So there's an example of where, you know, resources were probably uh, enabling bad behavior versus uh, um, helping to support access to care. So I think that that's an important thing for families to really think about is how are how is your access to resources either helping to support an individual in constructive behaviors or getting them the help that they need or or how are they 
um, helping to perpetuate destructive behaviors and really taking a critical eye towards that. Great points. It cuts both ways. And gosh, so much of your story, I think, is relatable to me personally with situations with my brother as well as other clients we've served. So I'm thinking about those families. I'm sure you've seen this at Karen, where there's multiple members of a family with addiction issues. We certainly have had what I call like family interventions where we're working with parents and then children. And as we peel the onion back a little bit more, we learn that this is part of the family's culture. Now, how does Karen think about addressing family systems like this? Yeah, I mean, we really take a look at the whole family system as the client. Um, and one of the things that, that, that we have learned over the years is that um, when you have an identified patient who is suffering from a substance use disorder or a mental health condition, I mean, again, it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a substance use disorder, it can even be a chronic medical issue. The tendency of a family is to, um, just as a natural function of unconditional love is to focus energy on supporting and rallying around that individual. Now, when it's somebody who is in active substance use disorder, the substance use disorder tends to be very energy intensive. And so as a result of that, uh, it requires the uh, support and energy of other people to help perpetuate it. So uh, unconsciously, uh, manipulation, lying, deceit, um, stealing, all sorts of those other uh, you know, negative externalities, so to speak, those behaviors that kind of go along with it um, end up being the, the, uh, the, the collateral damage that occur as a result of uh, that person's uh, illness. Um, so what are the consequences of that on the family member? Well, you have trauma for the family members. You have uh, lots of fear. You have lots of angst. Um, for siblings in that family system that may be more peripherally impacted, uh, you have unspoken messages that often get internalized um, just by virtue of the way they're interpreting, let's say it's a young adult, the, how the parents uh, are um, managing the other uh, the other child. You know, they may be sending the message to the siblings that are not having that issue um, that, hey, can you please not have any problems? Can you please not bring your problems to us? We've got enough on our plate right now. Can you please just be okay? Um, you know, I can give you a great example personally, and just because I think these are good relevant examples. And uh, one of my sisters ended up uh, coming to the same college that I did. And when I was in some of the worst um, years of my um, active use, a lot of my friends, when they couldn't get through to me, would go to my sister. And they would say, hey, your brother's in trouble. Can you do something about it? So she would go to my parents. And she'd be like, Brad's friends are coming to me. Can you do something about it? And they would kind of be like, what do you want us to do? Or, you, mm -hmm. you know, can you just stay away from him? And so she really experienced a significant um, mm -hmm. uh, painful impact of that because she was being squeezed by people who are asking her to help, going to my family who was feeling overwhelmed and not sure what to do. Um, and, and as a result of that, experiencing lots of pain, grief, anguish, and a lot of firsthand experience of my, um, you know, very you know, frightening behavior at times. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, historically speaking, these individuals within the constellation of the person inactive use would not be viewed as kind of primary. So our approach sure. to treating that is to recognize that each individual member, whether in the family of origin, family of choice, 
um, family work is really about each individual family member healing first and foremost. How do we identify what these individuals have been through and how do we help them refocus their energy about a return to self and not a focus mm -hmm. on what the other person needs to do? Um, that's where the energy has gone and it's led to the point that we're at right now. And somewhat paradoxically, as soon as families stop focusing on the loved one who is in the midst of uh, a self-destructive cycle and start focusing on taking care of themselves, it really does start to set the stage for um, uh, the opportunity for everybody to, to start to do better, including the identified patient. Um, from there, once families can start to, to heal, then there's the capacity to start to have a conversation around, okay, so the behaviors that you have been using to manage what's been going on with your mm -hmm. loved one, they have probably not been working and they have probably been in response to trying to control, to manage and to mitigate um, the, the, the impact of, of, of those behaviors. So since they haven't been working and since they've probably been in response to the negative emotions you've been experiencing watching that behavior, we need to both replace them with something healthy and we need to recognize that the road to going from where you are to getting there is gonna be uncomfortable. So we have to build support systems to help you do that. And so that's where therapy, that's where, um, you know, whether individual or group therapy come in identifying if there's underlying psychological or psychiatric issues. And sometimes families need to get into uh, psychiatric care. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, the role of support groups, um, getting connected with other families, Families Anonymous, Al-Anon and, um, and other fellowships become really important and, and start to help the family recognize that the process of family recovery, in many ways, in terms of ARC, really parallels that of the patient. Timeline might be very different, and and certainly with um, with uh, with a loved one who is more unaware of what they need to do to change, the family's timeline may may happen sooner than with their loved one. Yeah. But but when we start to see the family start to change and heal and implement those boundaries, um, very very frequently after an initial period of elevated resistance from their loved one we often see that the loved one begins to capitulate and start to make those changes, that those boundaries really do have an impact in, in helping to um, change their behavior. Wonderful. So uh, let me ask another question. If we dial this conversation back to parents of young children, where they know, you know, similar to my family, O'Connor's the last name, Irish Catholic by descent, very obvious genetic predisposition towards alcoholism. Do you, what's your best advice for those parents where they know that there is an issue that could potentially pop up yeah. in the future, but their kids are, you know, under 10? What, what do you suggest yeah. to them about how you introduce this? You know, it's an interesting topic, and it's one that I've been, been talking about quite a bit um, more lately, because um, it's definitely something, Arden, that, that I am concerned about. Um, and, and there's a couple of areas that, 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 that do have me concerned. And I think that one of the things, and this is something that I think is relevant to parents of any generation, and we all need to have a reality check about this, on ourselves, which is the tendency of every parent naturally is to parent our kids through the lens of how we were parented, what worked, what didn't work, and almost unconsciously approach the parenting of our kids um, with that framework. 
And that can be really helpful because if we had really negative experiences with the way that we are parented, we don't want to do those things again. If we had really great experiences, we want to do those things. You know, we took a lot of family trips. Family trips is a huge thing in my family. Um, it was really rewarding and we really loved it. And, um, you know, so we really try to do a lot of that in, in our family. Um, that's a positive thing and, and we're going to continue to do that. Um, but we also have to recognize that sometimes just because it worked for us, it might not work for our kids. And so having some objectivity around that um, and recognizing that the world today is different than it was 10, 15, 20 and 30 years ago is key. And one really key thing that's different today than it was when we were in middle school, high school and, and before is the availability of information. And um, so things that I didn't learn until I was in college, uh, kids have the ability to learn about when they're in middle school or late elementary school. And that's just by virtue of the proliferation of the internet and smartphones. And so I do encourage parents to be a little bit more diligent about recognizing that the things that they may be wanting to shelter their kids from learning about, uh, they may not have the ability to do so. And that while um, uh, kids do tend to get a lot of their influences from their peer group, um, they also are looking to get their direction on these things from mom and dad. But if mom and dad do not take uh, ownership and responsibility to script some of the, uh, the, the messaging around these things by not speaking up about it, then they will... Um, then they will rely on their peer group. So a perfect example of that is substances, uh, sexuality and things of that nature. And, and really what the growing body of guidance is talking about is around the age of nine is when these conversations mm. really should start happening. Um, that's when kids tend to start to have a bit more access in their peer group to things like smartphones and tablets with a little less uh, adult supervision that's when the content of these conversations starts to become a bit more adult. And, and so my, my guidance uh, to parents that I talk to is as uncomfortable as it may be, um, is to begin having the conversations about substance use, alcohol, um, and some of the, you know, in an age appropriate way, you know, to not push these conversations off until the preteen years and to early adolescence at that point there are other people having those conversations uh, that can't give your kids the context that you would want to ha them to have and, and begin moving those dialogues probably three or four years earlier than I think most parents are thinking they need to have them. Um, and so um, that's, that's kind of the guidance that we've been starting to, to, to have. I feel like I'm in somewhat of a, of, a, of a lucky situation where I feel like I can have those conversations because I work in this field, my wife works in this field, I have this personal experience, there's people in my family that have this personal experience, so it's not gonna be a big secret. Um, and so maybe that puts me in a bit of a unique situation. I mean, my daughter, who's almost six and is a, a pretty savvy operator anyway, is kind of the joke in the family where she's, uh, you know, she kind of jokes around about the fact that, you know, I'm not gonna be like daddy, I'm not gonna get in trouble. We'll see about that. I'm sure Carmel will come back and get me at some point. But, um, you know, but we do have pretty good laughs about these types of things. Um, but I do think that that you know, kids want to kids want their parents to give them the guidelines and the parameters. They may roll their eyes, but they hear us. Um, and if we choose sure. not to have those conversations, they will get it from somewhere else. So it is important for us to kind of anchor what our value system is on these things. I love that.
So I'm going to end the podcast with a question about what you're most excited about in terms of the field of addiction treatment. Where do you think it's going or what initiatives areas are you really excited about in terms of changing the way that the world sees addiction treatment and, and frankly, just getting better solutions for so many of us who are suffering? Yeah. Well, I think this is a really exciting time because we have operated too much in a subjective um, uh, field for way too long. And uh, I think that the next 10 years, you're going to see a great acceleration and adaptation of a lot more uh, 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 technological innovation that's going to make the treatment of this illness look a lot more like the treatment of other chronic illnesses. So we're not going to be having these dialogues as people are transitioning from one level of care to the next, where it's going to be, I think you need to do this because of I'm seeing A, B, C, D, and E, and the person saying, well, I don't feel that way. It's going to be, well, let's take a look at your brain. Let's take a look at these markers. Let's map all this data together. And it's going to tell us that based on what, um, what we're able to see in terms of all these different markers, you are at an elevated risk of a reemergence of use. And so as a result of that, you need a higher level of structure going forward. Um, much the same way that we would do the same for someone with diabetes, someone with hypertension. Um, that's gonna be a real game changer. Uh, we're gonna see novel and really powerful uh, and non-invasive stuff coming out with genetics that are gonna help us know early in life who is at an increased risk of developing, uh, for example, opioid use disorder. So again, does it mean that everybody who knows that they're at increased risk is gonna make wise decisions about being prescribed um, opioid medication? No, but we know that there's 40 million people who, who have a substance use disorder. If only 30% of people who now have a substance use disorder are making different decisions about medication because they knew they had a predisposition, uh, the social costs of that are almost impossible to fathom in terms of how many lives, how much strain on the healthcare system, how much domestic violence, how many families will still be intact. And the, the effect of all of this is going to be profound. And so all of this in terms of a vision is going to be driving us towards um, a world where the, the management of, these, of the addiction, substance use uh, uh, epidemic in this country in 10, 20, and 30 years is going to look much more like um, what the HIV epidemic looks like in this country today, more so than the HIV epidemic looked like in the late 80s and early 90s. The other part of this, and this is something that, that I think that is a, is a call to our whole field, is we need to really work on how we talk about this illness. Um, mm -hmm. For too long, we have operated in such a negative uh, narrative around it. Talking about the 40 million people who have a substance use disorder, talking about the 100,000 people that died last year. Again, these are important things, and they were very important to get people to recognize the scope and magnitude of this problem. People, people are aware of it. So we got it on everybody's mm -hmm. radar. Now we need to talk about the things that are instilling hope. We need to talk about the fact that 75% of all people who have a substance use diagnosis at some point in their life will get into recovery. We need to talk about the fact that there's over 20 million people living in recovery right now. We need to talk about the fact that, that, that there are, you know, while there are 75% of people that get into recovery, there are, you know, uh, uh, a subset of those people that have a lot of a lot of difficulty getting into recovery. So we need to focus on what is it about that group that struggles? So we can nudge many of these people with just 
try to get some help. You might get it right away. Oh, if you're not one of those people, great. Then we're going to focus our efforts on why these people, mm -hmm. they probably have multiple issues, why they really struggle. Um, but we need to get to a point where we're using less stigmatizing language. We need to get to a point where we're living in the solution and talking more positively. And we also just need to continue to get to a point where we as a field are a little bit less um, rigid and getting stuck in our way of thinking where it's, you know, what worked for me was the right way and anything that's new or novel coming down the pike, you know, I have skepticism of because it was not part of the framework that I understood um, when, when, I, when I went through this. And I do think that this new and young um, and, and, and uh, open-minded uh, group of professionals coming into the field is going to be willing to embrace that. But I think it's key because if we don't do that, I, I feel that that continues to be a, a source of the um, narrative that, that at times causes people to look, look at the field and, and, and delegitimize it. And they're not necessarily wrong. Um, we need to be much more mm -hmm. empirically focused and we need to continue to collaborate better. And I think that over the next decade, we're really going to have an opportunity to do that. What an inspiring vision to end on. Thank you, Brad, today for your time. Really appreciate and really appreciate pleasure. your candor and sharing your own story. Well, it's my pleasure, Arden. Always a pleasure to see you. And uh, thanks so much for having me and letting me share a little bit about it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again for joining us. Thank you to all our listeners and our viewers for hearing another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you're so inclined, please go to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a positive review. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.